0: All right. Question for you today. Did you choose God or did he choose you? And does it matter? We're looking at the last metaphor, wrapping up this study, on 1 Peter chapter 2, these pictures of the church. This particular metaphor, a chosen people, is both a metaphor because it's using the Old Testament people of God as an analogy for the New Testament people of the New Covenant. So in that sense, it's metaphor. But of course, it's far more than that, it's literal, because we are a chosen people. We are the people of God today. And so this is both something to understand symbolically, but understand in reality for us also. Let's read together our final time in this series. 1 Peter 2, beginning at verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, And a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. We've skipped that phrase. We haven't really spent a lot of time with that idea of those who have been in rebellion against God and rejecting the message having a destiny. But now that actually bears as we come to the next statement. Because verse 9 begins with the word, but. In other words, instead of that. So we see this phrase that talks about those who have stumbled over the message of the cross. They have heard it and chosen to despise it. Call it foolishness. That's their decision. But at the same time, there's this reality, hard to understand, that they were destined for judgment. So we have these people that, out of rebellion to God are destined to judgment. And then he says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So today, look at the contrast between those to whom Christ has become a stumbling block and therefore are destined, called to judgment, And those of us who have allowed Christ to become our cornerstone, and we are destined, chosen by God for his glory. Let's read on. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Well, we've certainly drawn a lot out of all of this teaching. Today we're going to take on arguably the most controversial concept and that is you and I being chosen by God according to his will. This is a hard area. The church has typically divided over the question of whether we choose God or God chooses us. And we have two streams of theology that are typically called either Calvinistic or Arminian because of the two theologians who first proposed two different ways of interpreting these teachings in scripture about God's sovereign election of people to himself and the free will that God has given each of us that is part of our being created in his image. Not only a gift with the responsibility, but something that God intended for us to use. And so we have these two paths that have often disagreed, and we're forced by most of the church to espouse whether or not we are one or the other. Am I a Calvinist or am I an Arminian? My dad had a real hard time with that. When he went to Bible college, people said, well, what are you? He said, well, I'm a Calminian. (laughs) I, I don't quite know. It's still a mystery to me. We have these five points of Calvinism. Are you a five-pointer? You know, what about those toughies, limited atonement and irresistible grace? Where are you on all these things? And and what we try to do is kind of pigeonhole and say, well, I'm here and I'm there. And the reason why we do that is because, frankly, we can't get used to the idea that the Bible was not written by Western-thinking people. It was written by Eastern-thinking people. And we want to come to a book that predates our laws of logic and make it fit into what we say must be true in a world where we think either or. We have fallen into this idea that it has to make sense to me. And if there are two teachings in Scripture that seem to contradict each other, I've got to prove that one is true and the other is sort of explained in the light of that truth. But the Bible most often doesn't help us do that. It just says what is. So this is one of those areas, but I've really only got about 20 minutes today to address this for you. And it deserves so much more. So I thought about calling this brief look at, at God's sovereignty versus free will, election for dummies. But then, then I thought you would kind of think I was accusing, uh, I was describing our audience. But my point is, uh, we're just gonna take a light look at it, And, and I wanna present some general ideas of how to come at these teachings in a way that lets God be God, that doesn't insist on God fitting into our understanding. And let me remind you again, as soon as you think that your job is to figure out everything that God reveals about himself and how he works in God's word, and as soon as you think you have it figured out, You've stopped worshiping the God who is you're now worshiping a God that you have limited to your understanding and your explanation and that's just idolatry that's all that is it's just a shadow of God God said my ways are not your ways my thoughts are not your thoughts they are as high above you and how you can figure things out as the heavens are above the earth we need to come at these things humbly the church has come at these precious doctrines with arrogance and with pride so much as to actually separate ourselves from others who don't have the same opinion. And that's a work of the enemy. When we look at these ideas of God choosing or me choosing, there's a lot of things that come into our mind. There's that either-or thing that I talked about. Well, it's, it's either I came to Jesus, I found him, or he found me. It's got, it's got to sort of be one or the other, doesn't it? There's also the issues of fairness. Is it fair that God chooses people? How does that work? Let me just offer this simple thought as um, sort of a place to begin. My wife and I got married. And let me ask you a question, which of us chose? Did my wife marry me because I chose her? You're the one, and she went, oh, okay. He chose me, what can I do? Now, the fact is, I chose my wife. But the fact is, she chose me. You know, I don't quite understand why we make it more complicated than that on some level. That the Bible says, in both ways, whosoever will may come, calls us to decision, says now is the day of decision, that there is a conscious choice that we make in our coming to Christ. But at the same time, the Bible says clearly, We're only his children because he chose us. And if you say, well, I need to prove one or the other, my answer to you is get used to disappointment. (laughs) Because the Bible teaches these truths that to us appear in tension, but in the lens of how God operates and works, who always operates in perfect wisdom, out of perfect goodness and perfect holiness and perfect fairness That God exercises, administers these two dynamics perfectly and sovereignly, see? So what I want to do is just to go through a couple of passages that help us look at this. But let's just start quickly with this idea of a chosen people as a metaphor. This idea of chosen means that God makes decisions according to his will and pleasure, not according to man's preferences and determinations. So look at the nation of Israel as an example of that. Who did God choose to to create a people for himself in the Old Testament? Did he choose a king? Did he choose an affluent man who ruled over a kingdom and a great city? No, he chose a nomad named Abram. Did he choose a family that already had dozens of kids and therefore was a logical thing to think that there's going to be a lot more kids And therefore, this could be a good starting point for a nation. No, he chose Sarai, his wife, who was barren. He chose, according to his wisdom, not man's. He chose the lesser, not the logical. And he said, I'm going to make a great nation out of them. And then Isaac and Rebekah, same thing. And then finally, two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau the older man's tradition is Esau receives the blessing Esau takes the inheritance the name the nation of God must surely come out of him what does God do he chose contrary to man's wisdom and man's tradition and he chooses the younger Jacob you see this idea we see consistently throughout Scripture why does God choose consistently against our thoughts about how he might choose and work well that's where we turn to the New Testament first Corinthians chapter 1 is one of three passages I just want to quickly give you hopefully I've already alleviated you from the sense that you have to decide if you're for our choosing God or for God choosing us can we please just put that aside so let me relieve you from the idea of having to leave here today deciding if you're a cow or a min Or a cowman. And let's just look at God's Word. And when we do that, what we see is that the New Testament overwhelmingly focuses on the sovereignty, the sovereign work and choosing of God in calling out a people to Himself. It's not to diminish any decision that we play, but the emphasis is overwhelmingly on God creating and calling out a people. Let me just show you some of the passages. First, Corinthians chapter 1 we'll start reading at 26 brothers think of what you were when you were called not many of you were wise by human standards not many were influential not many were of noble birth this is the next verse is the why God chooses according to his will and often contrary to man's wisdom but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that, what's the rest of the phrase? No one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, say it with me, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. Why does God choose according to His will? Because His desire is that He alone is the one that we boast in. He's not interested in us saying, yep, I knew God was going to do it that way. I called it. Look what God did through me. Look what I managed to get God to do because I chose. Now, I love that phrase. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. Why? So that we only boast in him. That's a powerful thought. That's why God acts according to his pleasure and will. Period. Because he's seeking his glory. Now, why is it right for God to seek his own glory when for us that's self-centeredness? He does sit at the center of all things. All things are by him and for him and to him. When we seek our own glory, we're putting ourselves in the position that God alone has. We boast only in the Lord. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to begin reading at verse 3. I pulled out my, my old preaching Bible today because so many of my marks on these particular passages uh, I, I love and so what I've got on this passage is there a bunch of color-coding so for instance I've got these phrases praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and I've got beginning of verse 6 to the praise of His glorious grace verse 12 for the praise of His glory uh, and then verse 14 to the praise of His glory I've got all that in one color because it's a continuing theme why does God do what He does for the praise of His glorious grace And then I have several phrases that all have to do with God's action towards calling us to himself, all circled and a map. I have lines drawn from one to the other. Verse three, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him with all wisdom and understanding. So just pause there. Everything that God does, he does with all wisdom and understanding. So when we hear actions of God that we don't understand, that in our understanding may even appear to be unfair, we need to recognize that that's our understanding that's the problem of it. It's not God's failure to execute. He executes always according to his wisdom and understanding. So that's the the comfort, that's the trust we can have when we hear these phrases. Let's read on. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. How did we come to know about the good news? How did that happen? God even made us aware of it. He did that according to his purposes and his good pleasure and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation having believed you were marked in him with a seal of promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory okay so let's look at this as a picture of what happened at salvation who does all the work God, is there anything that's described here that's our part? There's one thing that we do. Believe. 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 Having believed. See? So that is a point where we say, I believe it, I profess it. From our side and perspective, we are choosing to respond to God's call in our life. We're choosing. It's there. But put it in its proper place when set against the fantastic grace, sovereign, wise working of God to call us to himself since before creation. See, it's a powerful thought. And I'm not trying to explain it. I'm just trying to get you to be okay about it. I want to go to one more passage. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. This may be a bit more familiar, this passage, because it gives us a potential out in terms of acknowledging God's choosing us. (laughs) And that's this little word called God's foreknowledge. Now remember, we're putting aside this idea of needing to be one or the other, right? Because that's what drives the misinterpretation of this text. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. So why were we called? According to what? According to His purpose. Okay? His plan was the basis for His call on our lives. And now we see this sort of progression of how that worked. Verse 29. For those God foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn from among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So what is the primary theme of this passage? It's the theme of God's work in calling us and bringing us to himself. That's obviously the theme, isn't it? It says he did it all according to his purpose. So now those who want to dismiss because we become very uncomfortable with this idea of election because the implications, the fact that many are lost. We come back and we say, no, I have to fix this. I can't believe in a God that would act this way, so prejudiciously as we think of it. And so we land on this little word, foreknowledge. And what we say is, okay, how did God choose us? He looked down the path of time and he knew that we would choose him. And because he knew we would choose him, then he said, okay, I'm gonna choose you. So now, who is sovereign? We are. Do you get the arrogance in that? Do you get how that so diminishes God? To say that the only reason God takes credit for calling us is because he knew we were going to call him. We have this thing in our family where if we're having a, a little debate, Tommy started this, I think. Uh, you know, right in the middle of it, somebody, w- without having really won, will just say, I win. It's like they haven't really proved their point. They haven't gotten acknowledged. They just say, I win. <laughs> it sort of feels that way. When we look at this whole idea of God's sovereignty, his great wisdom, and then we go, no, no, foreknowledge, I win. (laughs) Think about a God who would know that we were actually the ones who chose him and then want to take credit for it. Yeah, I did it, and it's all for my praise and glory. Does that really make sense? And does that really jive with what Scripture teaches? Of course not. See, foreknowledge is relational. The word knowledge in Greek is relational. What it literally means is that because God called us, that in some mystical sense, God was in relationship with you already before he even created anything and before he created you. That's what foreknowledge means. So now none of that is meant to dismiss the fact that scripture says God so loves the world that whoever believes in him And God's not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Or the call to come and follow that goes out to many. It's not to dismiss any of that. But my concern is that that's not what we dismiss. We like all that stuff, because it puts our eternity in our hands. What I'm pleading for is a willingness to let go of the pride that insists that my destiny is exclusively in my hands and in my choice and that lets God be God. If you can open yourself up to this and not insist on owning it with complete understanding, if you can let go of that and have the faith of a child to look at this with mystery, what will open up to you is certain Realities of faith. Certain things about who we are in God can only open up when we're willing to accept and celebrate this idea of being a chosen people. Look at that as an act of a loving God and trust the rest to his wisdom, that he will always be fair. And these are some of the things that come to my mind. The first comes right out of our primary text. We are God's possession. What a great thought. We are God's possession. We are precious to him. You, as chosen by God, are precious to him. He knew your name. He knew there would be a point where he would act in such a way that you would understand he would make known to you the gospel and you would respond in love and no grace. That's precious. You're precious to him. We together as his people are a precious possession. Second, God gets the glory. God acts in a way so that none of us can boast. There was a certain boasting when we try to argue away God's sovereignty in election. We demand on having credit and having control. God wants us on our knees and on our faces before him, right? Soli Deo Gloria, all the glory to God alone. Third, this is where Paul goes. Paul in Romans 8, last piece we'll read. We're going to pick up at verse 31. So here he teaches this great sovereignty of God in working in our lives. And then he says the very question we're asking right now. What then shall we say in response to this? If this is true, where does it leave us? And this is what Paul says. Listen to this. If God is for us, who can be against us? Where does that phrase come from? It comes from the reality that God acted to make us his own. He possessed us. He chose us. He finished what he started in making us his children. He holds us forever as his children. God is for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against us whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of God's creation, that covers it, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, the final thing is confidence. Confidence it comes from surrendering to God's gracious sovereign loving choice to act in our lives and when God acts he finishes his work is done why are we insecure about that why do we not believe that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ why do we believe that we cannot survive hardships why do we struggle with uncertainty because we believe it's in our hands to believe it's in our hands to trust it's in our hands to create the security when we get the fact that God did it our confidence isn't in ourselves anymore that's just more boasting our confidence is in him you see where this can take you do you see if we open ourselves up to this idea instead of just being so uncomfortable with it, see if we just open ourselves up to this, how strong and how precious and how joyful our journey is. See? So let's stop putting this idea on trial. Now let's start embracing what we can understand about it and celebrate it and let it have that work in our lives of building our faith. God is for us.